Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Charlotte Nemeth will join us to discuss in defense of troublemakers. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Rocks Science Show. Well, we've always decided that consensus is a good thing, but really, is consensus all that good? Well, in the new book, In Defense of Troublemakers, Professor Charlene Nemeth explores this topic for a general audience. Professor Nemeth is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and her new book is called In Defense of Troublemakers, The Power of Dissent in Life and Business. And Professor Nemeth, very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. My pleasure. There's certainly a a fascinating book you've written here in defense of uh, troublemakers. And would you talk a little bit about why you decided to look into this topic? God, do you have three hours? (laughs) Probably a lot of the origins even have to do with uh, my own kind of personal history, uh, which you probably don't want to go into too much. But I think that um, mainly I think it arose from a period of discontent with the field of social psychology when I was uh, early in graduate school. I had a math undergraduate degree, by the way, and then I went into social psychology. I thought the issues were important, and I was particularly drawn to issues like brainwashing, you know, which we studied even in undergraduate school and whatever. And I think that what I was finding is that almost all the influence in social psychology was viewed as coming from the strong to the weak. So there was, uh, if you looked at the textbooks, the way you create attitude change or influence is if you have status or power, or if you have numbers. Namely, uh, we were struck by the power of the conformity phenomenon, which is, I'm sure you know, and your readers know, or listeners know, that uh, even for half century, the studies that show that people will actually agree with the majority that's completely wrong, and that if, and if the person were alone, they'd know they were wrong. But even about physical events, like how long a, a, line, a line length is, or the color that they see, they actually will uh, agree with an erroneous majority ag- against the clear evidence of their own senses. And I think that against that backdrop of which the whole field, I mean, it, it came under different rubrics, but if you, if you look at the common thread, it was basically that influence only went from the strong to the weak. And that meant that individuals who had a minority opinion, I mean, the one of the few, for example, who were the, at the center, are people who were low in status of power. Essentially, they always had this notion that they had to fit in and they had to kind of pretend to be something that they weren't uh, in order to have any influence at all. And I think it was really, in all honesty, I think there was an element of a personal experience. Uh, I went to Paris for a, a, a year uh, right after I got my PhD, actually, and worked with Serge Moscovici, who was a Romanian Jew who uh, came out during the war, really difficult period, new hard labor, impoverished, you know, you name it. His son is now, by the way, the... Uh, minister for the economy for the European Union. So it's been a, an incredible trajectory. But Serge, Serge had a clear notion of uh, the power of the minority, and he had just started to do work on uh, how m- minority opinions could persuade. And I think I was really struck by the, 
the power of that. And in some ways, it, uh, um, it was gratifying to hear as well. And it had complications to it that interested me. And uh, so essentially, I and other people that worked with them at the time kind of grabbed to it. And then my first job was at the University of Chicago. And of course, we saw dissent in our faces. I had a colleague beaten up, nearly killed in his office for literally for uh, protest uh, views. And I think those kinds of things conspired to give me an interest in the voice of the few and, and actually the power of it. And then it's sort of, and I'll try to make this short because otherwise it'll be a long history. But I think also I've always had a strong interest in jury decision-making in law and psychology. And there you begin to realize is that it doesn't really matter who wins persuade someone to their opinion. What matters is the quality of the decision. And the bottom line of it is, is that early research I did, basically, I got the insight that dissent did more than maybe persuade, mainly get people to change their mind, is actually change the nature of thought and for the better. And the bottom line of that is, is that the juries made, were better at decision making. They considered more evidence, more alternatives to it. Namely, all the things that if you could train somebody and make them go through this mentally, they would make, end up with better decisions. And the dissent provided that value, uh, even when it was wrong. And then from there led to just a ton of experimental studies, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, this book. I mean, you argue quite persuasively in the book about the power of dissent. Do you think that overall the focus on consensus has taken a, a wrong turn? Why do you think this predominates? In, why isn't the, the message of dissent out there? That's a very good question. I, I hear a lot of rhetoric in terms of the value of dissent, but whenever you sort of scratch the surface, you find that people still are very resistant to it. I think part of it is that it's uncomfortable. Namely, whenever there's a, certainly I, I think, and I, I'll admit to this myself, when people really challenge something I really believe, your in, initial reaction is sometimes one of irritation. You may be somewhat curious, but there is a tendency to listen, but only for a while. And then people often come to the conclusion that it's a waste of time or it's so clear that the person is wrong that all it does is it, it obstructs us from a goal we want to, to reach. It uh, wastes time. It causes everybody to become angry at one another. So and you can see all the reasons. And those aren't reasons that you can say don't exist. They do exist. It's just that what people don't have access to is the fact that their own thinking has changed as a result of the dialogue with a dissenting viewpoint, with hearing one that's, that if someone authentically believes something and persists in, in it, it, it does stimulate this kind of thinking that broadens the way we consider the issue. But we're not privy to that. You know, we think if we've considered multiple things, it's because we're just particularly smart or tolerant or whatever. And I think we tend to underestimate and simply don't recognize the power of dissent. So I think partly the reason for this is that it's hidden but I think actually the bigger reason is, is that I think a lot of people are weary and there's that feeling, you know, that we've heard many times of why can't we all get along? And that has an appealing, comforting quality to it where we sort of seek consensus much time, uh, often too readily. I mean, that's the bottom line, by the way, of the group think literature. You know, people know that term, but it, it, uh, when Irving Janus, you know, did his book on group think, it's interesting that the definition of groupthink is the strained hard consensus. And that's what kicks into action all sorts of symptoms that lead to bad decisions, you know, like the Bay of Pigs or the Challenger accident or things of that sort, is you see repeatedly those processes 
that in fact are engendered by the strained hard consensus. And there are many ways in which that strain gets, you know, bigger or smaller. But the bottom line of it is, is that that and that's why in the book even I, <clears throat> I refer to it as the perils of consensus. But I think the motivation for it, it really is one of um, believing that harmony is the route to good decision making and to creativity, and that disagreement is, uh, you know, maladaptive or doesn't lead to group good group functioning. Etc. So I mean, you, you can you can sort of understand why it is, but I, I do think it's going to muck. I, I really mean this. Uh, I, actually, I just just got a, an email from a friend, uh, a medical doctor, who was referring to a, a process that uh, uh, that they often is used for um, you know determining procedures. Namely, you know, if you're looking at evidence for the efficacy of a particular drug or a particular procedure, you know, you have to collate a lot of evidence. You've got to make a decision of what's the important elements. And even there, there's the process of uh, consensus-driven methods. People kind of push for, uh, you know, essentially votes until they get uh, sometimes just a simple majority. And so it's almost the opposite of what's being proposed in the book. Are there certain kinds of issues then that are more prone to groupthink versus other types of issues? It's a, it's a complex question, an interesting one. I, I think the thing is, though, is that you find group in groupthink in a, a, a version of it. It's a pop term, actually, but, but it, it describes a complex set of issues. I need to say that at first. But I think, though, that, you, find, you know, even those original um, case studies that uh, Janice did for the, the original work on groupthink were, were done by people who understood the issues very well. I mean, the Bay of Pigs, I mean, you had... Uh, the chief, you know, the Joint Chiefs of Staff people, you had Secretary of State, you had people who were presidents of Harvard, you know, on and on and on and on. And so they, they didn't lack either intelligence or knowledge or even expertise in the area. And they, they fully understood the issues that they were facing. The thing is, is that they didn't bother to use critical thinking. Namely, in, in the group itself, in the strain for consensus, there's sometimes it's a bit of a rush to judgment. And I think much like, um, well, in my own work is that if you have a majority opinion, what happens is that people not only are inclined to follow it, like the old conformity studies, but the bottom line of my work that I, I think is most important to me, at least, is that you start to think from their perspective. And so what happens is you start looking for information that corroborates that, that a consensus position. You consider alternatives from that perspective. Uh, I mean, whether it has to do with the information you access or the way you think about the information, it's essentially like self-brainwashing of sorts. And that's why cults, for example, use these techniques very powerfully because they don't brook dissent at all. And they do all the mechanisms that you can use in order to create consensus. And that's interacting with the like-minded and things of that sort. If we go back to the group think per se, is that I think it's interesting. There hasn't been a lot of research in all the antecedent conditions for groupthink, but the one that keeps that, that looked pretty clear throughout most most of the, the studies is that of a directed leadership. Namely, if you've got a group and you have a leader who has an opinion already from the outset and, and that's known, or he makes it known, and that's what happened in some of those events like the Bay of Pigs, uh, what happens is that's almost a recipe for groupthink. Is that it, and Kennedy learned that himself, by the way, because in the Cuban Missile Crisis, he, he didn't do that. He made sure that uh, all opinions were open. They created subgroups for people to discuss in order to kind of create differences of opinion, 
they, you know, made very clear they wanted dissenting views, et cetera, et cetera. Namely, they learned the lessons from the Bay of Pigs is what I'm getting at. And uh, one big one is that the leader didn't make it clear what he wanted in the first place, because that is a driving force for, you know, thinking along the same page. But along those lines then, so how, how then do we nurture dissent as part of a conversation or, or even how do we present a dissenting view such that it's taken in a way that helps to broaden perspective of, of the group? Yeah, you know, the, the part that's always hard for me, you know, demonstrating it at first and convincing people has been my mission for the last, you know, number of years. And uh, so it's often pitched to people who are leaders or to the CEOs or the leaders of groups because they're the ones who have to embrace and encourage dissent because otherwise to ask for an individual to have the courage to speak up when they are challenging power or a majority, particularly if they're challenging numbers, uh, is very difficult because, you know, about 70% of people don't speak up even when they see a problem at work. And, and, they, and partly they do it because they don't think it's going to make any difference. And secondly, they're sure they're going to get rejection, ridicule, or, or worse, or get passed over for promotion. And that's not, sadly enough, that is not unrealistic because that does happen. So many times, you know, my mission, whether it's in executive education or advising or whatever form it takes or lectures, is to essentially try to convince people who are in a position of, of uh, power or decision-making and hopefully also to to you know the, the regular people of you know of which we are all a part, uh, in order to realize how much we suppress dissent, and the fact is in the process we lose all the benefits that dissent in that challenge would create. Having said that, is that you know I think most tips, if you will, will come out of a conviction, and not not just a you know a political conviction of I you know all opinions are open and you know they welcome it because that usually. That doesn't last very long because the human nature, it kind of is going to rebel against it. So you have to really be convinced of it. And then I think what flows is often an opening of your culture. If, uh, for example, a CEO seriously wants to hear dissenting viewpoints, it can do two things for starts. I mean, one can create a safe atmosphere for dissent and can show that he really welcomes it. He sometimes can do it by expressing it himself and open, uh, by uh, rewarding someone even by verbal praise when they do speak up. I mean, some companies even have folklore or, or even awards, you know, for people who defy, etc. The problem with that, though, is that they usually only reward somebody where the benefit of what they're saying is clear. Tougher job is when it's not clear that what they're saying has value, and it's hard to see when you disagree with them, but the research shows, and I, this I underline over and over again, research shows that all the stimulating properties of dissent occur even when they're wrong. And so it isn't because they may have a truth that you hadn't considered. Most, most people buy that, that message. What I think they have to kind of really leave in the research is that even, even if they're wrong, and even if the content of their information is not one that you're going to accept. The fact of the dissent over time that persists during a discussion has a stimulating quality where you are going to end up making better decisions. You'll reassess where you started. You'll consider alternatives. You may come back to the original position, but now with a fuller understanding. So no matter how you cut it, you're going to benefit. 
I, I'm curious, do you think from the people you've talked to, do you think the, this view is taking root? You know, I, I, you know I, I hesitate only because I don't know that I, I know there's more discussion. I know there's more rhetoric about its value. Uh, I even had Harvard Business Review basically, which I, almost made me smile because the comment was is that people have, have come to uh, understand that dissent is important, but they kind of wanted tips for creating it. And, you know, you, and my sense is, is that it runs deeper than an intellectual conviction that, that dissent is valued. Because what you, at least what I find, is that everyone says the right thing, but I can't tell you how many leaders I've seen who will tell you, you know, I welcome all viewpoints, you can tell me anything. And then as soon as someone challenges something that they believe, you see the body stiffen, you see communication at the center that's essentially pummeling him into submission, or, or basically showing him the error of his ways. I mean, to, to just, I, I mean, this may seem trivial, but to kind of get a feel for that kind of phenomenon, I often go back to that really old movie of 12 Angry Men, because it happens to be a dramatic vehicle for a dissenting viewpoint that eventually prevails. But the really interesting part of the movie is you watch how the nature of the deliberation changes as a result of that dissent. And in some ways, it, it's kind of a nice way to, to, to get a feel for the phenomenon I'm talking about. And I, you know, in the book, I analyze that, that film somewhat for some of the elements uh, to look for. But back to your, your question, which is also still, how do, you, uh, how do you create it? I think, number one, you have to create a safety for them. And I think you're going to have trouble doing that unless you really believe it. And I think if people feel safe, they will speak up. If they feel rewarded and applauded for speaking up, they, they will be more likely to do it. But it can't be false. So you can't say, you know, tell me anything and then, and then beat them up when they do. Uh, I mean, people aren't, aren't foolish, you know. They, they can tell what's authentic and what's not. So I think there are elements of, of that. I think sometimes, too, you know, if you can, a lot of times in groups, by the way, I'm just saying off the top of my head right now in terms of tips, but it seems also the other thing we know, it's easier to speak up when you're not alone. And so if there's an ally, or even if there's someone who doesn't agree with you, but also dissents from the majority view, that has a way of kind of breaking up that uh, power to, you know, have you thinking just simply along one line of perspective and then uh, uh, rushing to judgment. So I think, you know, once you accept the underlying conclusions, I think people are pretty clever at knowing how, in fact, they can, they can encourage it, they can welcome it. And so a lot of times the point I make is that we should do more than just tolerate the set. We should invite it. We should welcome it. And that's a different attitude that I think leads to a, a, um, a, a different way of running groups and a different way of running companies, for example. Indeed, indeed. Well, may, maybe to close on that note, how then do we start to embrace dissent? You know, I mean, many times, one of the most enlightening lectures I give on, on, on uh, uh, related to conformity, you know, like with students, is that you show them that, you know, how have people discussing something in front of them, and there'll be a minority opinion that they don't agree with, that the audience doesn't agree with. And you will see very quickly kind of ridicule and derision toward that person holding the minority viewpoint. And the reminder is essentially, it's not they that oppress, it's we that oppress. We're, we're usually much more sensitive to someone beating us up for our authentic views. And we sometimes 
don't see the fact that we exercise suppression and we tend to ridicule people who have differing views as well. I think one has to do with an element of self-enlightenment. I think the other, quite frankly, is that you just state at the out, number one at the outset, if you don't state your own opinion and you make it clear that you want full discussion, you want to hear from everybody, and in fact, you're not only willing to listen to it, you demand it. It's the only way we're going to have authentic discussion of the differences. And a lot of times, even in teaching, you know, university teaching, I find that that sometimes really does bring people out who are afraid to express their particular viewpoint. And none of these are going to be a panacea, Dr. Lee, but uh, I think there, there are mechanisms at which you can help people to spe- speak up in terms of their own authentic voice. It is a fascinating new book, and I uh, certainly hope people will go take a look at it. It's called In Defense of Troublemakers, The Power of Dissent in Life and Business, the author, Professor Charlotte Nemeth. And uh, Professor Nemeth, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. Thank you very much for having me on. And that's all for this week's edition of The Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.